0: Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career. Today is episode number 378, Know Your Boundaries with Chris Hsu.
1: And, and then when I was at West Point, I was always in trouble. When I was in the Army, I was in trouble. So there's a stereotype that if you're in the military, you, like, you're like you a rule follower. You like, need commands, or like, hierarchy. all that stuff. What I thought was really amazing about the military was when you, as a second lieutenant, 22 years old, I have four tanks and all these soldiers that I'm responsible for, and we go to maneuver, and they give me a left right boundary, a mission, and a front back boundary. Within those boundaries, it is my job to figure out how to lead those soldiers to accomplish the mission. No one, like, there's no one telling me what to do. I had to conceptualize that battle space and how to do it and be creative. But what was beautiful about it was I knew my boundaries. I knew who I had to tie into on my left and right. I knew what resources we had from air support, you name it, uh, artillery. And within those bounds, I was able to plan and innovate and be super creative.
0: For today's guest, Chris Hsu, I could have spent a full episode on six incredible positions he has held since his time in the Army. His work as an associate principal at McKinsey & Company, as managing director at KKR, as senior vice president at HP, as CEO at Micro Focus, and as an advisory partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Each of those blow my mind. While we touch on these briefly, we spend the bulk of our time on his current role as CEO and co-founder of Zeebo, which blends real estate, financial services, and software. I view this interview more as a personal mentorship call where I soaked up as much of Chris's 20 plus years of experience as possible. Whether you are interested in entrepreneurship, developing a side hustle into a full-time job, consulting, finance, or tech, this interview has a wealth of knowledge for you. I really appreciated the contrast of Chris's experience to my own. He gained uh, industry experience before obtaining his MBA. He took uh, you know, nearly 20 years of soaking up industry knowledge before starting his company versus me, who just dove straight into starting a company after his MBA. And I think the contrast in our conversation will be helpful for listeners. As always, at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything we discuss, as well as 376 other episodes just like this one. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Chris. Dive, dive. Well, normally in the Bay Area or Tahoe, but recently moving to Reno, Nevada, my guest is Chris Hsu. Chris, welcome to Beyond the Uniform.
1: Hey, Justin, thank you. It's great to be here with you today.
0: So I want to give listeners your background. I want to give a little bit of context, too. I um, met for an interview months ago with a guy named Tom Kent, and I walked away realizing like, oh, I really need to spend a little bit more time meeting new people on LinkedIn. And uh, Chris was one of the people I reached out to. And when I was looking at his background, I thought, man, this is such an incredible story. I want to have him on the show. So um, Chris is the CEO and co-founder of Zeebo, a company he started nearly two years ago to radically improve financial services for independent landlords. He's raised over $10 million in venture capital. LinkedIn shows over 20 employees working there. And his path to this point started at West Point. It included over five years in the Army and tanks and has included work at General Mills, Associate Principal at McKinsey & Company, Managing Director at KKR, Senior Vice President at HP, CEO at Micro Focus, and advisory partner at Andreessen Horowitz. He holds an MBA from the Kellogg School of Management. And uh, especially for listeners who are on active duty, um, any one of those companies that I just mentioned would be, you know, a pretty big feather in your cap. But to have all of these um, accomplishments is really incredible. And, and the last thing I'll say before we dive into the interview is um, – You know, when I was at business school, I felt this sense that I needed to start a company right away, which is what I did. And and um, I feel like a lot of the popular culture is on this uh, message of seize the moment. You know, just do it. Just go out and start a company. And one of the things that I respect about Chris's story that we'll get into is he racked up so much experience before he decided to start his own company. And in some ways, it feels like that's in contrast to a lot of the prevailing wisdom. And uh, as you'll see, it's worked out really well for him. (laughs) So Chris, um, maybe to start things off, could you rewind the clock to back when you were in the army and that decision to leave and, and what that transition was like?
1: Yeah, Justin, I, uh, it's funny. I mean, that was a long, long time ago. You mentioned some of the things I've done in my career and I, I think those just date you. <laughs> I think it just says that I'm old. Um, but look, I, um, thinking back to the time that I was in the army, I absolutely love my time in the army. And if I, if you have asked me six months before I got out of the army, if I was going to get out of the army, I would have told you no. And my intent was to stay in and, and you know, be a career officer, and then you know the military has a really uh, interesting way of managing HR and managing personnel. And you know, I got into a, a job that uh, I was I was very fortunate when I was in the army that I got to pick basically all my duty stations and jobs. And so I had picked Fort Lewis, Washington, which was just a beautiful duty station, and um, had assignment to go directly to the armored battalion. Because for me, getting into command within a year was extremely important in order to go back to West Point and teach economics, which is what I really wanted to do as the next stage of my career. Well, as as in all uh, kind of army assignments, that uh, plan was changed on the ground. When I got there and I was registering, um, one of the uh, folks that uh, took my order said, oh, sir, your orders have been changed. I said, that's impossible, my orders could be changed. And they said, yes, you're now going to be the HHC executive officer for the 1st the Corps um, uh, support battalion. And I was like, do what? <laughs> I'm an M1A1, uh, you know, high-speed airborne ranger armor officer. And they said, sir, it's, it's not a mistake. This is signed by the Corps command. <laughs> so somebody had made a deal, and I was like their, their bargaining chip. So I ended up in this job where I was really distant from command. And I loved the job. I really enjoyed it. But it pushed me outside of my window for command within the time to go back to graduate school and go to West Point. And so I just decided that, you know, if I wasn't going to be able to accomplish that goal, that and there was there was no flexibility in the Army to get me into command earlier, that I was going to get out. And so it was a, it was a heartbreaking decision. Uh, to get out, but it's just another story about how the the Army HR system or personnel system works.
0: I love I love it. and And what was that first job search like? Did you know what you wanted to do or how did how did you navigate that?
1: Completely and utterly clueless. I honestly had no earthly idea. I mean, I remember being just scared to death about getting out of the Army, because I joined the Army when I was 17. I went to West Point when I was 17 years old. I didn't know anything but the Army. Um, I hadn't used a a, a spreadsheet since Quadro Pro in my engineering classes at West Point. Now it was like Microsoft Excel. Um, and, like, I called a bunch of friends who had gotten out ahead of me, as, in, as I think a lot of Army, or as a lot of military folks do. It was like you know, call the folks that went ahead of you and see what you can learn. I would taken the GMAT um, to go to business school, but a buddy of mine who got out before me was a very close friend. He said, hey, look, no need to go to business school. You know, you could go through this recruiting firm and get a job in a post-MBA job without going to business school and taking on all that debt. And to me, that sounded like a great plan. So that's what I did and uh, next thing you know i went to one of these big job conferences in austin texas and um you know no idea what career like these people are asking me you know why do you think you would be great at you know uh, silicon chip manufacturing i'm like well i would be awesome at silicon chip manufacturing for the following reasons i don't even know what that is <laughs> i remember texas instruments recruited me and i did a factory tour and I thought to myself, there's no way in hell I'll be good
0: at this. <laughs> <laughs> do you, you know, especially I'm, I'm thinking, you know, fast forward your story, you end up going and getting an MBA. What advice do you have, especially for the people listening who are on active duty? There does seem to be, you know, there, there's a lot of people who go to either back to school or specifically an MBA. And then there's some who take that recruiting path. What's your sense on kind of like the pros and cons on on that?
1: You know, I have people on my own team and and folks that I've mentored through the years that ask the same question. and I don't have a great answer. What I can tell you is it's totally personal, your own personal circumstance. So for me, um, you know, I thought that the the post-MBA job opportunity was great, and it was. I went to General Mills, was in a post-MBA role. As a brand manager, I learned a ton. What I realized after a couple of years was that I wasn't really sure that I wanted to be in consumer goods um, because it's a a fairly slow moving industry. It's an awesome industry. Like you learn a ton, especially about branding, marketing, general management, but it was, you know, it grows two, 3% a year. And, you know, at the rate of inflation, maybe slightly above inflation. And, um, And I wasn't sure that that was an industry that I could see my job like 20 years down the road. And it was basically the same job I was doing, but bigger, you know, and, and, and that just didn't necessarily appeal to me. And then I was one of five people in the entire company who didn't have an MBA that was in that marketing general management role. And there's these informal networks that exist all throughout the company. Um, of these different folks from you know top five MBA programs around the country, and I was just intrigued by you know all, I never wanted that to be the tiebreaker between me and getting that next opportunity, and so I think the combination of curiosity around what else was out there plus not wanting to not be included in those career discussions uh, are the reasons that really kind of drove the decision to go. I would say in hindsight, after I went to get an MBA, the thing that I would say is that it was, a, I only, I went to an accelerated one-year program, so it started June, ended in June. Um, and I did that because I was later, a little later in my career than most people had get an MBA. Um, I was fortunate enough to get into Kellogg's accelerated program. But in hindsight, what I will tell you the MBA did for me was it was the best year of investing in myself. It was pure selfishness. Like, I got a year to study, to think, to reflect, to build finance skills and accounting skills I would never, ever, ever get had I not done that MBA. And uh, and so I always tell people now, knowing what I know, is that if you're going to go get an MBA, um, view it as a huge investment in yourself. And, And take every moment. I always took more classes than I needed to, you know i always took every and tried to suck up every ounce of knowledge i could cuz i knew that that was one year of me investing in it
0: i i love that two two things i'll point out for a listener so so my path i was on submarines and i went straight to business school and one thing that i kind of long for is so much of that two-year journey for me was this transition and decompressing from the military and just learning mm-hmm. basic business things. And being at an extremely expensive business school and learning basic things was not the most efficient use of my time and money. What I admire about your path is, I'm, I'm imagining at General Mills, you were able to pick up a lot of basic business skills and terminology and you get a sense of like, okay, this is the way that one company works. And I imagine when you went to your MBA program, you were able to experience it at a much deeper level because you had this foundation that I just didn't have coming straight from the military. And then the the second thing that I want to point out is um, hearing your story. What I love about it is, you know, I hear that you go to general mills and then you get a sense of like, well, I don't really want to be in this industry. I have now a sense of what this will be like. I know that an MBA will be make a difference and I love that you pick up this knowledge, these kind of breadcrumbs of knowledge in this first year or two experience. And so often when I connect with veterans, and even in myself, there's this longing to know the long-term plan. There's this longing to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Wow. And your story kind of represents where this first lily pad, you're able to extract a lot of knowledge and then say, okay, I've, I've gotten what I need out of this year or two, let me now go and get an MBA. Let me go and try this industry. And I hope for listeners that depressures them. They don't need to figure out their 30 year career. They just need to figure out the next year or two and they're going to learn from that. And that will influence where they want to go next.
1: Yeah, Justin, I think, you know, a couple things that you said that I want to touch on. I spent a lot of time um, counseling, mentoring and hiring veterans um and um it's 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 really kind of the thing that I like to give back and and a lot of people choose certain areas that they give back in for me it's it's veterans causes um because I still feel so passionate about that that career service and what people give up especially folks since you know 9-11 I was I got out before 9-11 what my what the soldiers that have given that are in today and that you know, been post 9-11, it's just an unbelievable sacrifice. So, you know, I just, uh, um, I, I love to spend time with, with, with soldiers. Um, but one of the things that you said about this long-term plan is probably the biggest issue I see with people coming out of the military, is in the military, while people see, oftentimes say, well, I hate the structure and it's constraining and everything else, you know exactly what rank. There's a rank, there's a duty station, there's a process whether whether or not you like the way the personnel system works or not it's, it's pretty predictable and um, and you could literally look at your career over a 20year period of time and say okay well I know that I'm going to be here at this point here, there when you get out of the military, you have un- it, is, it is like living in a world of chaos. there's no one that's going to tell you what to do. there's no structure at all like you get up every day and you have to figure out like what what am i going to put my resources against like i don't know it could be professional it could be personal it could be anything it could be this career or that career or i could go back to school the the choices are unlimited and so when you're in the military you might have two or three choices when you're in the world you might have two to three thousand choices and in the number of choices are infinite because you can't even conceptualize what those choices And people struggle with that ambiguity. And, you know, what I would say about my career is I've always, I gave up the idea of having a long-term plan a long time ago. People ask me all the time, what's, what's your five-year goals? What are your, I, I have no idea, no clue. Because what I realized was I kept writing down these plans. And then, like, two years into the plans, I was doing something totally different. Or an opportunity created itself that had I not, like, looked up and said, well, wow, I could really benefit, or I could really learn, I could really stretch myself. If I did that, you know, I would have never, ever jumped and done it. And the other thing I would say that, um, you know, is is related to this point around long-term plan is as you make the transition, comfort with ambiguity, comfort with risk is really and it's not just your personal comfort, it's the comfort of your spouse and your family. And there's always this tension. You know, like you mentioned at the beginning, we uprooted from Silicon Valley and moved to Reno. That was a huge move for us as a family. And I have three daughters, two teenage daughters, a wife, and a, a, a younger daughter. And to, to like for every one of them, there was a huge amount of risk associated in the move. And so it's not just your risk tolerance, it's the whole family's risk tolerance. And I think think those are some things just to think about. I don't have any guidance. I'm just going to tell you, I look at many of my classmates who have had a far less, you know, on paper successful career than I have. And the only difference is not talent, it's risk tolerance,
0: I love that. So, you know, one thing that's very pertinent to my life is I often kind of, you know, I, I hear on podcasts and I kind of get this sense of like, well, I need to have these goals or these kind of metrics or things like that. And I think that might work for many people. But when I rewind, like the best decisions I made in, in life were not, you know, because I put on a poster board that I wanted to achieve X, Y, or Z. It was much more the, um, uh, the presence to just kind of say like, Oh, this is a good opportunity. And I, am a big you know, advocate of meditation and it's all about trying to be more present. So I love what you're saying, which is not depressuring the need for a long-term plan and increasing the focus on that moment to moment presence and just kind of, Oh, wow, here's a new opportunity. Here's a new, new, um, uh, uh challenge for me. And I love what you're saying too, about that, um, tolerance of ambiguity and willingness to take risk. And I think it's, you know, I'd love your thoughts on this because from some viewpoints, many people would say, well, someone in the military, they had a steady paycheck, they had, you know, a very defined path. So there's very little ambiguity. They're used to having a lot of certainty. But from another standpoint too, I'm like, man, some of these veterans have been in unbelievable circumstances and that's the opposite that's like the most risky you can have and so i just i i wonder do you feel like veterans are um are more apt to be open to that risk or is that something they need to kind of consciously be willing to say "Hey, i need to work on having more risk in my life
1: so i um describe this topic um because i was thinking uh so, I, so just my own background, I was never a rule follower. I got in trouble all the time when I was a kid. My kids, my dad, I just went and saw my dad, uh, 91 years old, and he was telling my oldest daughter the stuff that I did in high school. And I was like, Dad, you, can't, you cannot tell her about that stuff because I was a troublemaker. And the reason why I ended up going to West Point was our school disciplinarian became my biggest mentor because I was always in his office, and he then really got me focused on athletics and leadership and things that were constructive. Um, and, and and then when I was at West Point, I was always in trouble, and it was in the army I was in trouble. But so there's a stereotype that if you're in the military, you like you're a rule follower. You really need commands, there's hierarchy, all that stuff. And the way I describe it um, is. What I thought was really amazing about the military was when you as a second lieutenant, 22 years old, I have, you know, four tanks and all these soldiers that I'm responsible for. And we go to maneuver and they give me a left right boundary, a mission and a front back boundary. Within those boundaries, it is my job to figure out how to lead those soldiers to accomplish the mission. No one like there's no one telling me what to do. Like, I have to conceptualize that battle space and how to do it and be creative. But what was beautiful about it was I knew my boundaries. I knew who I had to tie into on my left and right. I knew what resources we had from air support, you name it, uh, artillery. And within those bounds, I was able to plan and innovate and be super creative. And I think, you know, the nature of what you do in the military is risky. I mean, by by the fact that you're putting your life on the line, like so many people can't even conceptualize, I'm going to join the military, put my life on the line for a concept concept of defending our freedom as a country. And then within the, the daily task, you know what your boundaries are. But within those boundaries, you have to be creative and think about how to get the mission done. And I think that's the way I describe the ability to learn innovation in a military context over and over
0: again. I love that. We're going to, we're going to fast forward a little bit. We'll come back if we have time, but I want to encourage listeners in the show notes at beyondtheuniform.org. I'll have a link to, to Chris's profile, the companies that I listed in his bio, McKinsey and company, KKR, HP, micro focus, and recent Horowitz. These are companies that should be on your radar um, aspirationally, but let's, let's jump ahead to today. You run a company that you founded called Zebo. Let's start with um, set context. You bump into uh, a fellow West Point grad on the street and they say, Hey, Chris, what does Zebo do? What do you do for a living right now? How, how do you answer that?
1: Yeah, so first of all, let me just set a little context. I, when I got out of the military, I realized I was poor and I didn't like being poor. And um, I, um, I realized that I could actually make money, I listened to a radio show. Uh, and somebody asked me recently, one of my employees said, oh, what podcast was that? I'm like, dude, when I got out of the military, there was no such thing as internet, let alone podcast. <laughs> and, and so anyway, it was, it was funny as anything, but it was an AM radio show where these guys had made millions of dollars in real estate. And I thought, man, man, I'm a mathematical economics major from West Point. I should be able to figure this stuff out. So I got into rental property real estate about 20 years ago. And so I've lived every pain point that an independent real estate investor ha- can can have from, you know, major losses from insurance, you know, storms, you know, squatters, hoarders, you name it. And so my, I built Zeebo to essentially help independent landlords really address the financial service component of owning and managing property. And so... Our vision is to be that one-stop-shop platform for financial services that transform the independent landlord's experience with financial services. So banking, payments, rent collections, bill payments, vendor payments, um, uh, uh, insurance, getting the right insurance, having transparency around that insurance. USAA is one of the best insurance companies in the world, but it works for like two properties. If you start to build your portfolio beyond that, it doesn't work for you. And, uh, and then mortgage, you know, how do I get a mortgage to finance this, these, these properties, the best thing you can do in your investing career to buy a real asset with leverage, because if you buy something um, that's worth a hundred dollars and 80 of it is somebody else's money, you've got 20 of it in. It goes up 10 percent. You've made 50 percent on your equity that you put in, and I, people don't necessarily conceptualize that. It's just—it's unbelievable how much equity value you can create by using leverage. And I think you know—I remember I was somewhat of a geek when I was in the military. I wrote a paper about how to become a um, a millionaire as a 20-year officer in the military when I was a uh, a brand new second lieutenant and. and you know, one of the guy that writ- graded the paper gave me a bad grade because he's like, that's irrelevant to everybody in the military. I'm like, no, it's relevant to everyone. And the whole point was take 50% of everything you earn and save it. And then invest it in real assets, either, you know, real estate or the stock market in a diversified portfolio that gets you on average somewhere between 6 to 8% return over the lifetime of your career. You could become a millionaire. So so anyway, um, the whole point of Zebo is to fundamentally transform and to bring all the financial services together for that independent landlord so they can grow their portfolio, make more money, invest more, and create wealth for themselves and their family.
0: So what I think is interesting here is, you know, before we had this conversation, I imagined like, you know, you're working at all these incredible companies doing this work. The idea for Zebo must have come out of that. But it almost sounds like you had this. I, I hate the term side hustle, but let's just use that. You had this side it was, hustle. It was with, a hobby.
1: Yeah, it you was had this hobby. A side hustle. Yep.
0: When did that? When was that insight born? When was this? When? When did you have this idea of like this is what is missing in this industry?
1: Sometimes. Ideas have to hit you on the head. And this one hit me on the head. So what do I mean by that? Uh, This was not originally my idea. Um, I ran into, in the course of working with Andreessen Horowitz, um, I ran into a number of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. It was a world that I had little experience with and little exposure to. And these people are a different breed. They have a risk tolerance. I talked about my risk tolerance. They have a risk tolerance that's beyond anything I've ever seen. And I grew just an unbelievable and profound respect for some of these founders. In fact, you know, uh, Oleg Bruginski, who's the CEO and founder of People AI, is a guy that I work very closely with. And his story is just remarkable how much risk he took to build that company. And I worked very, very closely with him, and he inspired me. And in the course of doing that, I was like, wow, I really would love the opportunity to create something from scratch and to build your own team to build your own culture, to build your own strategy, to build your own products. So that when people, you know, I always took over businesses and they always had issues and you blamed other people for those issues. You blame the market or you blame whatever. When you start a company from scratch, you have to take a leadership selfie. Why? Because I don't know if you can see that. You take a leadership selfie because basically you say everything that this company has, has that's good or bad, emanate from one and that's the person that started it but in the case of Zeebo I was I got exposed to a couple of serial entrepreneurs in the real estate space Um, Gregor Watson being one of them who founded Roofstock, which allows you to buy real properties online with the click of a button and some investors in and around that prop tech fintech space and as you mentioned my side hustle and my hobby was being an independent landlord And it just struck me that a lot of the stuff that I learned in my career around branding, positioning, building a product, technology, software, financial services, I could buy side hustle, essentially presented the opportunity to create a company that was an intersection of all those things that I had done. like this wasn't me sitting in a rocking chair with a glass or with a you know thing of scotch going boom I got this unbelievable idea. It was bumping into these people when I was doing something completely different and being open to the idea of like it's almost like the the Reese's peanut butter cup commercials. I don't know if you remember like you know one person sitting with the the jar of peanut butter and the other with a bar of chocolate and they bump into each other and like boom. All of a sudden, you know, the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup is created. It was in a way like that. And it happened remarkably quickly. And then I started to diligence the space and really to put some, some real mental capacity against it. And it became clear to me there was a huge unmet need in the marketplace. And then I jumped in and started building a company from scratch. So how long
0: was that period of time? Like, so you, so you start doing the, you have the idea, do the due diligence. How long until you, you left, I'm guessing, um, either Andreessen Horowitz or, or Micro Focus to start this? Like, how long was that?
1: So, so I met these guys in, in early December of 2018. I started having lots of conversations with them and investors in the space through January. I was very intrigued, but not committed. In February, I started getting conviction around the size of the opportunity and the lack of anything like it. And, um, and really started to understand the state of play with FinTech, FinTech and PropTech. And by the end of February, beginning of March, I was pretty convinced that this is something I wanted to do. The second week of March, I was, I was committed. And then April 1st, I left uh, what I was doing at Andreessen Horowitz and jumped in with both feet. Uh, And I remember, like, up until April 1st, it was very romantic. It was like dating in high school. Like, everything just seemed like, you know, really, you know, it's like a Cinderella story. And then April 1st, I was like, holy guacamole, because this is being recorded. Like, (laughs) this is really scary like there were no people there were no systems no processes no strategy it was just an idea on a piece of paper and you know that is scary and it took me really long time to recruit my first person and then my second person and then my third person and by the third person things started to roll things started to feel because then we had kind of had an idea of what we were going to do first second third and like it just kind of came together. But that first like six months, I remember my wife looking at me, like thinking there was her, like telling me, I mean, there's a lot of things you could be doing. And like, why did you pick this? It's this crazy. Like you're never doing this. Game. You bet this one better be successful because you ain't doing this. Game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you know, going back to where we started, Compared to, compared to you know, some of the people I talk with who literally leave active duty and want to start a company day one, I'm imagining, you know however long it was, your bank account is in a pretty strong position. You've got a pretty incredible network between business school and all of these incredible locations where you forge, forge these relationships. So you've got a good network and then you've got an incredible breadth of knowledge about business in general. Um, So I'm imagining three distinct advantages. What, what advice do you have? I know everyone has their own path, but what do you have advice do you have for someone who's on active duty and they're thinking like, well, I'm going to just start this company as soon as I get out.
1: Listen, the people that are, I would never discourage someone to start a company as soon as they get out. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of benefits that I have having the experience and having seen, I've worked for hundreds of world class businesses around the world. I've done massive restructurings, massive deals, billions and billions of dollars in transactions that I've, I've led or or been a a deeply part of. Um, But like the one thing that, and I've got a lot of energy, um, and passion but boy when you're in your 20s and 30s and you're trying to prove things out you've got a lot of just passion and and you just don't have as much like you know look i've got more to lose i've got um i've got a bigger a, a bigger base to take risk off of but more to lose my opportunity costs are much higher for doing something like this and if you're just starting out so there's there's pros and cons of both. I will say that, from the vantage point that I sit now, which is, look, you know, two, almost two years into this, where we're actually getting real real traction in market, like if you'd asked me a year ago, like this is so hard. Starting a business, even with all those benefits, is remarkably difficult. And and a lot of the stuff that you articulated has helped us get a a running start in many, many things. like, knowing what to like knowing what decisions to make when based on pattern recognition knowing the sequence of events that you need to do in order to build a skilled business knowing like how to pick up the phone and call the chairman of a huge insurance business and say look you need to work with this company that you have no idea who they are what they do and spending 6 months developing that relationship that basically gives you the foundation to provide insurance from any asset in any jurisdiction in the United States, like somebody coming out of the military day one is just not going to have that. And, 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 and so in, in the pattern recognition of knowing, like, you know, how to make decisions, what decisions, what trade-offs to make when, when to say I'm not going to make a decision about something, I think that's really hard. But you've got passion and excitement, and if you're willing to take that risk, You might fail miserably in your first thing, but maybe your second thing is successful or your third thing is successful. I mean, there's a lot of people that are super successful in this world that just took risk and kept at it and grinded it. But I do think you need to know when something just doesn't have legs. You know, I've seen too many people invest too much of their own personal time, capital, and resource in things that just don't have a big enough market they don't have a competitive advantage or you know they can't out execute the next guy um and, and i think that's a really difficult thing to 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 do so i won't number one discourage anybody from starting a business i think it's awesome i wish i had done it when i was earlier in my career i benefit from a lot of the things that um that i've learned over the years but there's a ton of people have been remarkably successful who don't have the benefit of those things and. I think they had the humility to surround themselves with people that had broad experience to the table that helped them grow that business. And I think that's a really important trait that you have to, you have to have when you're, when you're starting a business without the level of experience, you've got to be humble enough to bring people in who are so much better than you and have so much more wisdom or experience or, or are an ability to fill out like right now I'm trying to hire a head of marketing. I need a, I need somebody to really help us build that, that platform out. Um, it's a big gap for us. We're doing remarkably well with like, you know, my product guy, myself, and um, and by the way, an ex Marine, who was a Marine recon officer basically running marketing for me. Um, Ian uh, Cameron, who's just awesome. it's like, guy I hired straight out of the Marines and he's doing running customer care, customer support and, um, and marketing for us and doing an awesome job.
0: I love it. I, 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 just really appreciate the nuance of that answer. Like you, it's a, it's a complex question and I appreciate the pros and cons on both sides and even articulating your own opportunity cost. And so it's like, it's always easy to to view the grass greener from a different approach, but I, I appreciate that too. And also Demonstrating that people can, you know, have that passion drive it. How yes, does. The grass uh, is
1: always greener. My neighbor's ranch is much <laughs> more beautiful than mine.
0: I love it. I, you are literally on that. Um, do you, when you, when you started, um, how long was it until you, you raised your first round of funding?
1: So I was fortunate. So I, my um, uh, partners had pre funded, they had a, what they call pre seed. They raised a little bit of capital to kind of help find a CEO and you know do some basic market research. And then when okay. I came in, we raised uh, a, a bunch of money like right away. Like we raised an additional um, set of funds and we closed on that first round. And then about I would say eight months later, I raised another um, uh, a, a pot of capital. And so together, that was ten and a half million dollars of seed capital. Um, I raised some debt capital alongside that because you never know what's going to happen, and you know having flexibility when you're an early stage startup is is really important. Um, so capital is king. Having a strong balance sheet gives you the flexibility to innovate, and you know I knew that that was something that I really appreciated from you know all the years in, in business is really understanding you know the the the, the importance of having a long runway. And really having capital, uh, you
0: know, to do that. And and I think you know, going back to that hypothetical example of someone straight out of the military, I think it's important to know that Chris's story is not representative. Like, first of all, having the capital before he joined, and then the the pace at which they were able to raise capital, I would say, is very atypical. But And and to realize that without that, not only are you going without a salary, but you're investing your savings in the infrastructure of whatever business you're creating. And most people kind of assume things will go faster than they do. And so, you know, there are many people I know who on active duty are great at saving. And so they may be able to weather that storm or maybe cobble together money from friends and family. But generally it takes you know, the old adage I heard was it takes 10 times long, everything takes 10 times longer and 10 times more money than you expect. And so just making sure that you've oh, got true. enough dry powder to to weather that storm, to generate revenue or raise external capital, if that's your intention.
1: You, you're, you're so right. And I think, you know, a lot of people are weary of giving up um, uh, ownership or portions of ownership of their company so they don't want to raise capital. And you know, and and I've always I mean I've had that debate in my own mind because when you raise a lot of capital early on, you give up a large portion of the company to these investors. But it's a little bit of a chicken and egg because you can't build a scalable business without capital. And and, and time is of the essence because as soon as you put a shingle out there What we put out there is really unique right now, but in five years from now, if we don't build this thing out to scale, somebody else will. And so, you know, it's just always a trade-off of like how much of the company do you want to give up versus how much capital do you need to go fast? And speed is of the essence.
0: I love that. One of the best pieces of advice I got for my first company when I raised our series A, one of our board members said, Justin, don't don't nickel and dime this thing. He's like, if, if this thing is successful, everyone's going to be happy. So whatever gives you an, a fraction of a percent chance of being more successful, do it. And I remember playing the numbers. I'm like, you know, if I give up 5% of my ownership, if this is worth whatever, I'm not going to care about leaving a couple hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is on the table. Like if I make $10 million or whatever it is, it's just like really maximizing the the chance of the company succeeding and not trying to, to nickel and dime everything.
1: It's a competitive, competitive world, and there really are very limited barriers to entry. So ideas are worth nothing. Execution, is it's all about execution. And you, you, you just can't, like having an idea on paper, it's, it's um, I think Mark Cuban said it fast. It's the entrepreneurs. Like you can be a entrepreneur, you can have a great idea, but somebody else does it, executes it and scales it. Like, great. You can go tell your grandchildren that you had that same idea, but like, doesn't do anything. Yep. Um, yep. And there's many, many examples of great companies that have failed that had the best technology. Or the best idea but somebody else executed a go to market better than they did and they yep. just took the market and so you know talk is cheap ideas are cheap i
0: i also wanted to ask you know you you worked at companies that have reputations for being very hard charging McKinsey, kkr hp you know i i imagine those were extremely demanding roles i'm wondering your path with entrepreneurship how does it compare to those roles in terms of the psychology, the risk, and the, the work-life balance? Like is it consistent or are there ways that it's different?
1: So it's it's so different um, in many ways. And let me you know, give a couple of examples. So when I was doing things at McKinsey and KKR and being an operating you know executive, you're all in 24-7 and you are traveling all the time. You got to go see customers, you got to go see portfolio companies, you gotta, like you're on a plane all the time. And so like it's exhausting and you know you're 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 oftentimes the the trade off is you're not home with your family. And um, uh, the difference for me in being an entrepreneur is no one else feels the weight of the success of the company and the people in that company like the CEO know it. And even co-founders that are in the business um, just don't feel the weight of, of, of the company on its shoulders like the CEO does. And if it fails, it's your responsibility. If you run out of capital, before you bring that idea to fruition, which happens every single day all over the world with entrepreneurs, then you didn't plan appropriately or you spent capital too quickly. And I feel that weight. And, and the people that bet on you and bet on the idea, they're the ones that lose. And, and so I feel that in a very, very real way. And the other thing I would say is that, as a um, you know, as an advisor and at McKinsey, at KKR, and at Andreessen Horowitz, you're always sitting next to the CEO advising them on what to do. When you're the CEO, there ain't nobody advising you. You, Well, there's lots of people advising you. There's lots of people with a point of view. But ultimately, the buck stops with you, and you've got to make the tough decisions. All tough decisions fall on the shoulders of the CEO. And I think that's really different.
0: And I I I appreciate that. I feel like I had, um, after my first company, I had so much more empathy for my submarine commanding officer where I was like, you know, I just kind of had written off a lot of his things. I'm like, that's, you know, having that level of responsibility really weighs on you. But I think like what you're saying too is like, not just, you know, the the, the welfare of your employees, but you feel like responsible for their families and like all of these things. And I feel like so much in entrepreneurship, so much of your identity becomes inextricably wrapped up around the company too. There's that, that psychological component. So I, I really appreciate that. I I know we only have a little, a couple minutes left here. I I first wanted to ask, um, are there any resources that have helped you in your career that you would recommend to listeners? That could be um, a book, could be a movie, a podcast, uh, uh, an AM radio show, (laughs) anything that listeners today could maybe get their hands on that might uh, build some muscle from a professional standpoint.
1: Yeah. So I, um, I'm probably not as into the podcast, even though we're doing one (laughs) as, as my younger generation who are just unbelievable in the amount of content that they, uh, that they uh, consume on podcasts and, and actually bring to the table. I actually learn from all of my younger, kind of more millennial employees because they're listening to tons of stuff and they're bringing it to the table and we're, we're, we're teeing it up and, and making decisions um, or, in, or embedding it in, in our, um, in our um, uh, you know, way of doing things. What I would say in the early days of my career, I spent a lot of time reading management books, leadership books, management books, any profile about any leader and their journey. Like, you know, Hank Paulson is a great example. I read an interview in Fortune that he did a long time ago about the discipline that he had in his life in order to be successful at Goldman Sachs, when he ran Goldman Sachs. And then to be successful as a treasury secretary during one of the greatest financial crises this country has ever had. You know, I I read a lot of um, books about um, brand management and how to position companies. You know good to great, uh, built to last those types of really not trendy books, but books that look over success over a long period of time and what leaders and managers did to position those companies uh, for success and i would I would be careful of the latest trends um, look for lasting um, you know, books that have lasting, like the, you know, the art of management, the, I think it was uh, Deming wrote that um, the, you know, a lot of work, a lot of books about teams. Um, they're just, those are the types of books that I would look to. Um, I, I love uh, books like Endurance from uh, Ernest Shackleton's Journey, uh, which is just to me, like the, the concept of, of, being extremely disciplined every day in what you do and getting up and really pushing yourself to accomplish daily objectives. And when you then piece those things together over time, if you've given people a vision and then manage them in a structured way on a daily basis, you know, you can accomplish remarkable things. You know, um, I still think that, uh, you know, I think it's Covey's um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is a remarkably good read Um, because it, um, it just, like, I think a lot of people struggle with prioritization of what's, I mean, simple matrix around what's urgent versus important. And whenever I'm feeling stressed about having too many things on my plate, I always kind of come back to that framework around how do I keep enough capacity in my mind and in my company to make the important decisions or do the important things versus the things that seem urgent. Um, I think that's a great one. And then the book that got me interested in management leadership um, was something that someone recommended to me when I was in high school when it was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I just recently listened to uh, to the book on tape on Audible. and I was just struck by I read that when I was in high school, and then you know, I listened to it uh, on uh, recently. And I was just struck at how many of those messages still apply today. You have to kind of get yourself comfortable with the context in which he tells the story it seems like, you know, like like it was like prehistoric. But the message about how to strike an emotional chord with people is so remarkably. Um, relevant today, and even more so when everything today is about the trend and the fad, and it might last you know, six months or a year, but go back and, 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 and take some of these historically um, uh, you know, great books that really stand the test of time and read those. That would be my, my advice.
0: I love it. And for listeners at beyondtheuniform.org in the show notes, I'll have links to all of these books so you can, uh, in case you're flying a jet or driving a submarine right now or driving a tank uh, and don't have time to write it down. Um, I always like to leave space at the end, which is, um, you know, whenever I'm on the other side of the microphone, there's always something that I, I want to say and there's not a question that leads me there. So I just want to make space for any final parting words you'd like to leave with our members, some of who are in active duty, some have been out for 15 or 20 years, but all of them are just trying to, to reach, that, reach that peak potential, both in their work and personal life.
1: Yeah, listen, I, um, you know, number one I, thing I want to say, Justin, is, is thank you for your service. And I mean that, you know, coming from, like, I, I get told that all the time, but I don't, think people don't really know what that means. Like, I understand with civilians who've never served, i understand what it means i understand what folks that are on active duty have given up the sacrifice and i have so many of my personal friends that are still in and i'm just um, in awe uh, for what you guys do and so i just you know for those that are that have served post 9-11 thank you for your service um thank you for the sacrifice um not just you but your your family and your friends um and uh, i just take my hat off for you look i would say you know if you're thinking about getting out, um, I think there is no substitute for one step at a time. You know, I remember during really dark periods of my career and there were plenty where I failed or, you know, just fallen down or done something stupid. Um, you know, I just used to think back upon my time at Ranger School and like when you think you just can't physically go anymore. Where you just are mentally, physically, and emotionally spent. And somehow, either somebody on your team lifts you up or um, you get divine intervention, or you find that space deep down inside of you to keep going. To me, that's what it takes to be successful in any, in any career you do. It's, it's, it's endurance. It's you know being confident that you can find the skills and capability, and hard work to keep going and, and, and not be afraid. Don't be afraid of failure. Learn from it. That would be kind of my last parting words.
0: I love it. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time. I I can't even imagine how busy you are, but I appreciate the wisdom that you shared. I know I got a ton out of it and I know our listeners well as well.
1: Thank you, Justin. And thanks everybody. Perfect. Perfect.
0: Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with help from our chief of staff, Steve Bain, and our editor, Kathleen Dillon. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 330 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of more men and women who need it. Poster reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but we don't have nearly the resources to do so. If you know of a company that would like to advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them to beyondtheuniform.org. Third, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of beyondtheuniform.org. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll also find 330 plus episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll find a link for live events, typically four per month. You'll also find both free and for purchase books that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career and life.